It's a great joy to be here with you this morning. Um, I fancy that there was supposed to be a handout of the what I'm doing. Have you received that? Oh, terrible. Uh, oh, it's coming, it's coming like the end of the world, hey, space. I don't want it. I've got my copy. <laughs> oh, that's right. Some of, I'll have to have a translator here. It's just while this is going around. First of all, it's a great joy and honour to be here with you this morning um, on this occasion. And I feel a bit like an interloper coming in and preaching and uh, taking this Bible study this morning, but please forgive me for intruding. Um, I want to do a Bible study on something that's very familiar, deliberately so, uh, but to look at it maybe in a new way. Okay? And uh, the text, the, the, pa the Bible passage I want to look at is Psalm 23. Now, if there's any part of the Bible that's known well by Christians, very often off by heart, it's the 23rd Psalm. And in fact, many people outside the church know it very well. It's dearly loved and rightly so. Well, I want to have a look, a close look at that, this Psalm from one point of view. By um, looking at this Psalm, I want to try and encourage you when you read and meditate on Scripture, not just to look for the ideas that are here in Scripture but to see the pictures that are here, to encourage visualization, visual meditation. So, and that's what I want to focus on. And um, in doing so, I want you to uh, not only look at what's being compared with what, but looking for surprises, unexpected turns. If you can imagine that uh, reading a psalm or reading a passage of scripture is a bit like watching a television commercial. You get one picture after another. And the best commercials have the most arresting pictures. And they come one after the other. Now, what they encourage you to do is to visualize what's there and to draw the connections between the pictures. You do it automatically. Um, because you've learnt that from watching them for many years. Now, however, the best television commercials have the most unexpected twists. They start off with something familiar, set you up, and say, uh, at the point where you say, yeah, I know, yeah, I know, and then, bang, it gets you. You know the way it works? Okay, now, what's, um, the imagination is very, very important for us as human beings, um, the imag your imagination is your inner eye. You have your outer eye, which you see, but you also see with your mind. And then there's the spiritual eye where you see with your heart. The importance of seeing. We human beings are not just people who can think remarkably, but we have the capacity to visualize, to envision um, what's unseen. Can I just say that? God's given us the capacity to see what's unseen. And so it's important for us to use our imagination uh, to see what God says to us in his word. 
not just to understand it, the ideas, but to see what he's saying. Because God, through his word, wants to disclose to us the mystery of his grace. Now, mystery deals with things that are unseen. The most important parts of our lives are not the visible side, but the invisible side, the unseen side. And all spiritual gifts are invisible, unseen. Um, So, uh, through God's word and meditation on God's word, we get to see, we get to have a vision of the invisible world of God that surrounds us. And in that way, we see what's otherwise unseen. And the result is that we have a vision of God's presence and his dealings with us. Just take something obvious. Some of you have been to Holy Communion this morning. Some of you will be going to Holy Communion this morning. Now, there's a side to this service which is visible. This building, pastors, bread and wine, etc., you don't see the most important part, which is that Jesus is here. God the Father's here. The Holy Spirit's here. We're surrounded by angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. We see ourselves receiving bread and wine, but what do we receive with the bread and wine? The body and blood of Christ. Um, Okay, now... Psalm 23 is a a psalm of trust. Um, Okay, uh, and it's one of many psalms, but instead of it being just a focus on um, uh, an occasional experience in which a person comes to trust God, the focus here is on the the experience of the whole of your life. Not just trusting in God one day or one week, the whole of your journey uh, with God. Now, I forgot to bring my Bible. I'll get it. Okay, the vicars. I think I can say it from memory. Um, You'll have it also in your hymn books, actually, which you've got there. Let's take that version. You probably know it by heart. Um, Psalm 23. Let's get the Psalms. I'm getting it from the hymn book, so people have it before. 3.20. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love, probably better mercy, will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know it well. Now this psalm falls into two parts, quite clearly, with two different dominant pictures. Now, two pictures. 
verses 1 to 4, the picture is of the Lord as the shepherd and each one of you as one of his sheep. So, shepherd, sheep. And then comes a strange jump that's prepared for, but still comes rather unexpectedly. The picture is of the Lord, God, as host and you as his honoured guest. So, shepherd, sheep, host, honoured guest. Now, that's the basic picture um, that we need to have in our minds. First of all, verses 1 to 4, the picture then of the Lord as shepherd. Now, um, most, very few of you have probably been uh, grown up working with sheep on a sheep farm. Anybody here? Work? One person, okay? Okay, uh, uh, we'll form the sheep club. Now, picture for me, just before we have a look at the first part, the day of your average shepherd. Now, the shepherds were usually um, young boys, teenage boys, unmarried young men. Okay, remember David was the youngest of his brothers? And because he was the youngest, his task on the family farm was to look after the sheep. Okay, so this is the day of a shepherd. Okay, number one, you sleep where? Not at home in the house, but you sleep together with the sheep. You get up in the morning, um, and you do that in the sheepfold. What's the sheepfold? It's the pen. Okay? It's a, uh, an enclosed area with a door that you open and shut. And um, very often the shepherd uh, used to sleep across the entrance to the fold or in a hut that was next to the entrance of the fold. You get the basic picture? Okay. In the morning he gets up, he opens the door to the sheepfold, and then he leads the sheep out. He doesn't drive the sheep out the way we do in Australia, but he leads them out. Okay? He goes out, and they follow him out. And then he takes them to their pasture. Um, you've got to picture a semi-arid climate, not a lush, green, fertile land like uh, you have here in Chicago and its surrounding areas, but semi-arid country, a little bit like down in Arizona or some of those parts, like most of Australia, in fact. Um, very little water, not a great deal of pasture land. Now, the shepherd knows where the best pasture is at which time of the year. Uh, he's familiar with the whole terrain. Uh, you don't put them in paddocks, you lead them out to uncultivated land where there's no crops, and you... <coughs> Uh, lead them there. So uh, he leads them out to the pasture land and uh, then once it's there, then uh, he, uh, the sheep graze and they usually graze for the rest of the day. But during the day, particularly with hot weather, summer weather, like now, very dry, very, and you're eating dry feed rather than green feed, you've got to lead the sheep to water and to water on a hot day, maybe two or three times during the day. So you lead them to the pasture, from the pasture to the water, from the water back to the pasture. Now, the most dangerous place uh, for to lead uh, sheep to pasture is where there's rushing water. Because sheep are a little bit stupid, and if they go, they slip in, and because of the wool, then once the sheep gets in water, they drown. 
Um, so it's a place where there is a pool of water rather than a rushing stream. Okay, then during the day, the shepherd watches over the sheep. And then when evening comes, he leads the sheep back home. So there's a right track, the sh track that the shepherd takes the sheep out into the pasture, and then he brings the sheep back home at the end of the day. Okay, that's the task of the shepherd. Now, that picture of sheep and shepherd was used quite commonly in the ancient world as a picture for uh, kings. Now, the kings of a nation were shepherds. They shepherded the, their, their subjects, the citizens in their kingdom, like sheep, um, providing for them, but most of all, protecting them from wolves and bears and other predators. Um, so kings and shepherds belong together everywhere in the ancient world. That's, if you like, um, the dominant uh, uh, metaphor for uh, uh, political metaphor. Now, the Old Testament takes that picture, which was used for kings, and applies it to God. So God is the shepherd of the nation of Israel. He is the shepherd of the flock. And the flock is his people Israel. Now, um, given that, okay, shepherds uh, being kings, God is the shepherd of Israel, what's the immediate surprise that you get right in the first line? The Lord is, you'd expect him to say, the Lord is our shepherd. But David here says, notice it's David, he's the king, and he puts himself with the sheep. He says, not the Lord is our shepherd, but my shepherd. Now, uh, from any practical purpose, that's stupid. A shepherd doesn't look after an individual sheep. A shepherd looks out for the whole flock. So right at the beginning, you get a surprise here. Um, okay, now, uh, God shepherd, and uh, you as the sheep that he uh, uh, takes special care of by yourself personally. So you have a personal... Just as some people have personal trainers, uh, here you have a sheep who has a personal shepherd, personalized treatment. Now what God does is provides for his people the way the Lord provides, uh, the way a shepherd provides for his sheep. Okay? Uh, number one, he provides food for them. Just listen to them. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing, even in drought hard times. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Why? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures. Okay, normally speaking, a shepherd in the Middle East, or sheep in the Middle East, as in Australia, spend all their time doing what? Looking for food. No, it's not lush climate, there's not a lot of food, so you nibble a bit here and you nibble a bit there and you wander around and all day you spend feeding. But here you have a shepherd with a difference. Why? Instead of leading to dead, dry grass, he leads the sheep into green pasture and there's so much food that the sheep don't have to spend their time looking for food. They can lie down, not on their backs, but crouch down on all fours. There's so much food. And it's not dry grass, but green grass, the best food. And secondly, he leads me beside what kind of waters? 
still waters, a, a, a dam, a, a safe place. A, so he provides food, he provides water, and water that gives rest, uh, that enables the sheep to rest. Because normally speaking, sheep have to go from the pasture to the water, and then water back to the pasture. But here you get pasture and water together. You see them? They are together. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Now, at this point, uh, you've got to listen closely because the, uh, here the psalm jumps out of the picture. On its, If you take the imagery of sheep and shepherd, to restore my soul would mean to satisfy me. Now, I'm hungry and uh, come out into the pasture and he uh, uh, satisfies me. He nourishes me. And as a result of that, I don't have to go looking for anything. I can sit down and take it easy. He restores my soul. Lovely phrase, but there's something bigger at work here. This is not sheep and shepherd. Keep the picture here. Restoring my life, restoring my soul. Uh, 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 it sort of hints at the way the psalm is going to go. Giving satisfaction for all needs. And then comes a strange twist. Normally a shepherd would take the sheep out to the pastures by what kind of route? Or route, as you say? Is it route? 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 What kind of a path? A path that avoids danger. A safe path. A safe path that doesn't lead through dangerous places. But listen to this. Here you have the good shepherd who gives his sheep everything, and what does he do? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. Um, oh, no, going back here, sorry. Um, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. A shepherd takes sheep along the right path, not the wrong path. Okay? Um, uh, paths of righteousness are paths that lead in the right way so that the sheep don't get lost and don't, uh, uh, don't get hungry and aren't attacked by predators. Safe path, right path. Um, paths of righteousness are also paths that lead to the right place. So they're the right paths that lead to the right place. And here you get something funny. Why does he do this? A shepherd leads the sheep along the right paths for whose benefit? The benefit of the sheep. But the Lord does this for his namesake. What on earth is meant here? It means that he does it for his own reputation because by the care of his sheep or me as a sheep, he wants to show me what kind of a God he is. And what kind of a God is God? What kind of a shepherd is he? He's a good shepherd who cares for me, giving him a good reputation for his name's sake. Better keep track of time here. Okay. Okay, now get the picture, okay? You get the shepherd leading uh, the sheep out to the pasture, water, so that they're satisfied. And now comes the return back home in the evening, leading on the right paths out and the right paths back home. And then comes the surprise. 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And where do those paths lead? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. For what? For you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. Now you get a shift from talking about the Lord to addressing the Lord. Notice this is the first you in the psalm. You are with me. Um, now, uh, the big surprise here is that this good shepherd leads his sheep through which place? The valley of the shadow of death. Just let that sink. He doesn't um, lead the sheep away from danger, but he leads the sheep through danger. And the worst danger of all is the danger of death. What kind of a shepherd is this? A stupid shepherd. Okay, uh, a good shepherd, ancient world, leads sheep along the paths that lead away from danger, away from attack, away from sickness, away from death. But here you have a good shepherd that leads his people through darkness, danger, death, and beyond. And the picture here is, there's two pictures that you need to have in mind. There is a ravine. You've got a mountain range. Okay? The sheep can't go over the mountains. They've got fairly delicate feet. They can't go over the rocks, the mountain. So, uh, but there is a ravine that leads from the pasture land through to the fold. And uh, that ravine is the path that the shepherd leads his sheep. Now, the valley of the shadow of death, the picture here. Now, let me show. If I've got the light behind me, my shadow goes in front of me. So uh, wherever I go, if the light's behind me, the shadow goes in front of me. The valley of the shadow of death is the valley in which you experience death already in this life. The valley where death casts its shadow, the, the death which approaches and comes to us casts its shadow on us. In fact, you could say the whole of our life is the valley of the shadow of death because death throws its dark shadow all over our life. Just as the Lord throws his light over the whole of our life. Now, the valley of the shadow of death, um, the picture that people would have in the ancient world when they hear, heard this was that this was the ravine that led into the underworld, the dark place, chaos, death. Right? You have the overworld, and you've got the world, and then you've got the underworld. Well, this is a valley, a ravine that leads you down into that terrible, dark, chaotic place. Okay, what does the good shepherd do? Leads them through the valley of the shadow of death to beyond. Okay, now what's so special about this good shepherd is that he doesn't leave this, sh this sheep alone, but what does he do? He travels with this sheep through this dark valley. And he doesn't go with, just with him, but he's going out in front. 
He's going out in front of the sheep and the sheep follows him. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. I'm traveling with you. And his presence then makes all the difference. Um, he has two things in his hands. The left hand, he has, this is the left hand, I've got a thing. The left hand, he has a wadi, a club, that he can protect the sheep with. Uh, say if a wolf attacks or a lion attacks or a bear attacks, he can, ward the, he can hit the away with it. And his right hand, he has the shepherd's crook to pull the sheep out, to guide the sheep, to steer the sheep. Um, so uh, the Lord travels with his sheep and brings his sheep unexpectedly to the valley, through the valley of the shadow of death. Can we just stop here? Popular Christianity in all its versions around the world and particularly here in North America seems to give the message that if you go with Jesus and he goes with you, you won't have any trouble. Is that so? That's not the experience of the church. That's not the experience of you as Christians. Sometimes we as Christians have more trouble than people who don't believe. The strange paradox is that Jesus leads us through the trouble and where do we discover most clearly that he's with us? Not when things are good, when we are in the green grass, uh, chewing away, lying down, drinking all we want, and just being, uh, uh, having a good time. But we know his presence with us in trouble and danger and even death itself. Um, so he protects us, his presence protects us, he guides us, he protects us with his staff. Okay? Now, you have that picture, and now you get a sudden break in the television. So you get the first one all about shepherds and sheep, bang, and now you get a picture of a house, and a meal, and a host, and you as the guest. Um, just listen to what's said. You prepare a table before me. Who's the you? God. Prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Who usually prepares the table? Who prepares the meals? Is the servant. Here God, who is the good shepherd, prepares a meal to serve his sheep. Um, so the picture of host and guest, and that picks up the pictures of food and drink that were touched on in the second verse. Okay, um, just one other thing just on that. The surprising thing is where does God prepare the table for his sheep or better for his guest? It is what place? Hmm? The presence of enemies that gives you a clue. Notice the presence of enemies, not away from enemies, but confronting the enemies. And where are the enemies? In the valley of the shadow of death. So it's in Death Valley that he hosts this amazing meal for you and me and all his guests. Just let that sink in. He prepares the meal 
for you in Death Valley. Um, hey, now, you need to know a, a number of things then for this picture to, to, to really register with you. First of all, most people in the ancient world, as still in the Middle East, don't eat food from tables. That's a very modern invention, eating food from tables. You go to uh, North Africa, Saudi Arabia, many parts of Africa to the present day, where do from where, where, how do people eat food? From the floor. You put a mat, or you put a banana leaf, or you have a little tray, and people squat down on all fours around the tray. Um, there's a circle there, and you squat on the ground. And the food is put in dishes in front of you. So you sit on the floor, and you eat food off uh, a mat. Okay. What kind of people were the only people who had tables in the ancient world? Royalty. Okay. Kings. Um, and very often you had a funny thing. The king had his little private table, and then all the rest of his family sat on the floor. He had the table, uh, uh, and the rest sat on the floor. Um, that's the first. Kings have tables, but then also there's the Lord's table. Where's the Lord's table? The altar of the temple in Jerusalem, because the purpose of the sacrifices wasn't for human beings to offer food and drink to God, but God to provide holy food, holy drink to his people. God the host, uh, the Israelites as his guests. Um, gets the basic picture? Okay, now the surprise, as I said, is that God is this host who does something that would very rarely happen in the ancient world. He waits on his guests and prepares a royal banquet for you as his guest. He rolls up his sleeve, becomes the servant to serve you. Um, at the table, he's prepared for you. Um, we get a little picture of this um, in the story of the visit of three angels to Abraham. Remember, Abraham senses that these are important people, so instead of getting Sarah or his servants to prepare the meal, Abraham himself prepares the meal, and Abraham serves these three angels who are his guests. Um, that's the picture here. Now, the next picture is very important if you're going to get the full force of this passage. Um, I don't quite know where to start. But I'll say that one of the um, sad changes in our modern world is the decline of hospitality. Uh, social commentators say that uh, more and more particularly in urban areas, people are retreating into privacy and they never open their homes to anybody outside their own family. Have you noted that? Even if people invite you out, they don't invite you to their house, but they take you out to a restaurant. That's becoming more and more the norm in our society. Hospitality, one of the great human gifts and one of the great Christian virtues. Now, hospitality has a special place still in most of the third world and the ancient world. Um, you see, 
in the ancient world there were no hotels, there were no motels, so that if you were a visitor, you were a sitting duck for exploitation, murder, robbery. So if you came to, say, if I came to Wheaton in the ancient world, um, I would be, my life would be in danger if somebody didn't offer me hospitality. But as soon as Brusick offers hospitality to me, then the fact that he offers hospitality to me means that I become, have the status of an honorary member of his family. I become family. Okay? And not only his family, and I come under his protection, and I have the status of you know, a brother or a son, okay? that sort of status, but then also I come under the protection of his God or his gods. You see, in India, as in ancient world, every house has an idol and a shrine and a sanctuary. There's a God that lives in the house that the house is dedicated to. So you come under the protection of that person's God. So hospitality is sacred in the ancient world and one of the most terrible crimes... So you can find it in Greek uh, law. One of the most terrible crimes is the violation of hospitality. Um, that very often uh, carried a death penalty. If you violated hospitality, uh, you uh, then would uh, come under death sentence. If not from human beings, then from the gods. Get the basic picture? So, um, yes, uh, I think I've covered there. Now, uh, What's remarkable here is that God offers hospitality to you, his guest, in the presence of your enemies. Just let that sink in. God deliberately offers hospitality, holds a meal, serves you in the presence of your enemies. Who are your enemies? No human beings, but Satan and the evil spirits. And what is God showing your enemies when he offers you hospitality? He's saying, this guy belongs to me. If you mess with him, you mess with me. If you touch him, you touch me. And me, I and my family will uh, uh, avenge him if he touches me. Now, God covers us not just with his justice, but with, with his holiness that protects us from what? His enemies. I mean, our enemies, and he does it in the presence of his enemies. So just think of Holy Communion. You come here to the Lord's table, and he prepares that table before you here in Death Valley in the presence of your enemies to protect you from your enemies. Let's go on. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, this is not just any normal hospitality, but this is royal treatment. God doesn't just treat us as um, no, son, daughter, member of the family, but he treats us as if we were kings, honoured guests. Why? Well, number one, he anoints our head with oil. This is a psalm of David. When was David anointed with oil? Remember? Who anointed him with oil? 
Holy Oil? Samuel. And he was, became the anointed of the Lord, the holy oil which made him oil, holy and made him a king. So whose head was anointed with oil in the ancient world? It was kings and priests. Each one of you has been anointed with the holy oil of the Holy Spirit and that makes you kings and priests together with Jesus. Holy kings, holy priests. Um, also in the ancient world, you sometimes anointed people's heads, um, but only for very, very important guests with oil. Now the oil that you have here is not your normal oil that we talk about like olive oil or vegetable oil, but is perfume, very, very costly precious perfume. Okay, and then um, as his guest, he doesn't just give you one or two glasses of wine, but he uh, puts a great big bowl. Picture is, uh, any of you seen those uh, bowls in the ancient world? About so big, they were craters. You had full of wine, and usually it's for all your hosts, and people would take it and drink out of it. Huge things like that. You can see them in museums. Probably in Chicago here, you'd see these old they're called craters, these bowls, um, and you'd pass it around. Now, what the Lord does is puts this bowl of wine in front of you, and he doesn't just fill it up once, but it's a bottomless bowl. Every time you take a sip, he adds more and more, and it flows. The more you drink, the more there is to drink. The never-flowing wine that comes to us, the wine of Christ's blood, the wine of the Holy Spirit. And so... We enjoy God's hospitality and royal treatment in what location? In Death Valley. Okay, now comes another funny little twist. Um, uh, let me give you the literal translation of verse 23. Surely goodness and mercy or loving kindness or generosity... This word here can, means all those things. Surely uh, love, goodness, mercy, generosity shall chase me or pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now everywhere people say that, um, uh, you know, comment on the law of karma, if you do evil, evil will chase you. Um, and bad luck chases you, dogs you. That's the cliche. Surely evil will chase me all the days of my life and eventually hunt me down. And that means the older I get, the less I have to look forward to. But here you get a funny twist. Surely God chases me in order to do what? To give me his mercy, his loving kindness, his goodness. God chasing you. Um, Luther, in commenting on this in one place, um, remembered what happened when he was a boarding student at the uh, grammar school in Eisenach. This is before he went to university. The students there, which was, it was also a monastery, had to go begging for their midday meal. So only breakfast and tea was provided. They had to go out the streets begging for their midday meal. And it was winter time, and uh, there were very few people on the streets, and the people on the streets didn't want to have anything to do with pesky students. And he remembered that he was as hungry as a horse. 
and there was a sausage stall and a, a man who was smoking, who was uh, cooking sausages, and when his back was turned, Luther grabbed a single sausage and started running. Now the guy who had his back turned around and saw him and said, stop, stop, stop! And the more Luther shouted, the more, uh, the man shouted, the more Luther ran, till finally the fellow grabbed a whole string of sausages and was waving him his hand, eventually ran Luther down, and guess what he did? He said, here, have these sausages. He says, that's the way God is. We expect him to punish us. And what does he do? He chases us in order that uh, we may receive his goodness and mercy. Um, just finally, because we've got to uh, pull this together, now comes the last verse. Um, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord is God's home, but also the temple. And God has two houses. There's his earthly house in the temple in Jerusalem, and there's his heavenly house. And both of these go together here. Um, any, it, nobody lived permanently at the temple in Jerusalem. The priests used to stay there for sometimes one week or two weeks when they were rostered on duty. The only person who lived in God's house was the high priest. The king lived next to God's house, but didn't live in God's house. Most Israelites just came occasionally to visit the Lord's house two or three times a year. So they were occasional guests at the Lord's table. Now, how does this wonderful psalm end? It says, in the future, God's plan for me is that I won't just occasionally visit his house to enjoy his hospitality, but God's plan for me as my good shepherd is that I will enjoy God's hospitality as a permanent guest forever and ever. Amen. Uh, quarter two. You can look up the rest of that yourself um, <laughs> as it applies to you. Now, uh, just to summarize, um, two big dominant pictures, if you like, it's like a television commercial, two main sequences. The first is an odd shepherd who treats you as his sheep, but he treats you in a strange way. Um, he treats you um, as a very special sheep, and he leads you on your way through life. So it's a picture of the whole of your life. What's the whole of your life? It's your journey with your good shepherd. Now, that journey ends in what kind of a place? A strange place, the valley of the shadow of death, which looks like the end of it all. And it's strange that the Lord should lead you into the valley of the shadow of death, but he leads you into the valley of the shadow of death so that he can bring you into his house where you can enjoy his hospitality forever. And you go that journey every Sunday. Second picture now. The Lord is not just your shepherd leading you on this strange journey through life, but uh, your journey through life is one in which God is your host who serves you as his very special guest. 
as he did for some of you this morning and will be doing for you shortly. Thank you. God bless you all and blessings for your new stage.